Welcome to the Specialty Pharmacy Podcast, your prescription for specialty pharmacy success. Hello and welcome to the CSI Specialty Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Andy Madigan, CSI Vice President of Client Engagement and your host for this episode. Today, it's our pleasure once again to visit with Richard Williams, CSI's Senior Vice President of Pharmaceutical Innovation and Insights. Richard is a second-generation pharmacist who spent the last three decades in the pharmaceutical industry. Welcome back, Richard. Thank you, Andy. I'm glad to be here. Today, we'll be covering the topic of biosimilars. Richard, I know that you recently gave a presentation on the topic at an industry event in Philadelphia. Can you share with us a little bit about that presentation, some of the highlights? Well, Andy, thanks uh, for having me back on your podcast. Uh, Biosimilars are going to be a very important part of the future of healthcare. In Europe, they've been adopted and are used quite often, and it has allowed the European Union countries to save a lot of money on healthcare. We actually need biosimilars to be successful here in the U.S., similar to, to generics. And if you think about back in 1984, I believe, when the Hatch-Waxman legislation took place, uh, there was a, a slow adoption of generics. There was conflicts between brand manufacturers and generic companies. There was misinformation. We're kind of at that same point in time with biosimilars today. And so let's share a little bit more information about them with your listeners. Great. Where do biosimilars fit? in the healthcare system? Well, if you think of small molecules, uh, I've, I've seen some people will refer to small oral products similar to a bicycle. And then we move to um, products like insulin, which were biologics, and, and insulin would be considered an automobile. More complex, more moving parts, more expensive to make and manufacture. And then you move to um, products similar to like uh, human growth hormone, which were even more sophisticated than that. And some people would refer to those like an airplane. And then finally, now we're into these very large biologics that do a lot of really good work to cure diseases such as psoriasis and Crohn's disease. And now we're they're exploring a lot of other illnesses that are very debilitating. And people kind of refer to these molecules similar to the space station of how complicated it is. Sure. And so, so there has been this evolution with small molecules. It, we, we have Hatch-Waxman legislation that uh, other companies can come in after a patent expires and, and reproduce the product. Basically, it's baking a cake. Keep in mind, biosimilars, these are living organisms, much more complicated to manufacture, much more expensive to manufacture. We won't see the same price reductions we've seen with generics, but we may see upwards of 15, 20, 25, even 30% discounts over the existing brand name products that are uh, on the market today. And so there is quite a, a large savings because those products are very expensive. Right. So how many approved biosimilars are there? Well, as of as we record this in late December, there's 25 biosimilars that have been approved by the FDA. But what you have to understand is that there are 10 that are being commercially available in the United States. 
there are five to six biosimilars for that have been approved that are will not become available until 2023 because of existing patents and lawsuits and some of the other uh, legal matters that exist in today's marketplace. But going forward, Andy, what, what your audience needs to understand is there's more than 500 biosimilars in the pipeline. And wow. so biosimilars are going to be readily available. They're going to help uh, create some reduction in the healthcare system, which in turn we need to allow us to pay for the innovation that's being developed going forward. Right. So with that many biosimilars in the pipeline, it seems to be only a matter of time. What do you predict are some of the impacts it's going to have in the U.S. market? Is it going to bring down drug costs, um, healthcare spend? Um, is it going to be resisted by certain factions? What are, what are consumers going to see? What are patients going to see? Andy, it's been estimated that uh, the adoption of biosimilars in the U.S. could save the U.S. healthcare system more than $54 billion between 2017 and 2026. We've seen some of those initial savings here in 2019. I think 2020 is really going to be the year of biosimilars uh, where the information is going to be better. The communication of that information to providers and to patients is going to be better. I just saw a, a video uh, by Dr. Jeff Patton, who is with one of the large national oncology groups, and he talked about the adoption of biosimilars in their physician practice in the oncology space, and uh, that they are totally on board because it not only does it save healthcare money, it saves patients money in out-of-pocket cost, and so they are fully on board adopting. And I think we'll see other physicians and physician groups adopt that philosophy moving forward. So what do you see as some of the challenges to bringing those to the marketplace? You mentioned some legal hurdles, perhaps, as it relates to patent and other. Do you see other interests, perhaps, having a problem with this? Well, yeah, Andy, um, there are there are probably three big buckets of areas of that people are trying to work through and understand and clarify. Uh, the first is the regulatory policies and guidance. The FDA navigating through the FDA is complex and it's confusing. There's been a lot of discussion about how do we label, what do we call these products. I think most of that has been resolved. And when you look at the American Patients First Blueprint, there's tremendous interest in making the biosimilars available to patients, but there's also confusion uh, among patients and there's confusion among providers uh, with regard to how they're adopting, which is really the second point is the lack of patient and provider adoption. How do you truly integrate biosimilars into clinical practice? How do you avoid the misleading information on safety and efficacy? And this concept of interchangeability, which may be the single biggest hurdle and barrier interchangeability uh, will allow a pharmacist to actually substitute a biosimilar for a brand name product. They will have the legal authority to do that. That's going to be decided at the state level by state legislation. Almost every state has adopted some type of policy re with regard to that, but it's going to be more complicated than simply converting a, a brand prescription to a generic prescription. So there's still a lot of work to be done with that. And then finally, the third point of where the challenge is going to be is the misaligned incentive. It's the reimbursement models. It's 
pay or fail first strategies that are required based on rebates from the brand manufacturers. And then everybody's focused on short-term bottom line. Everybody's kind of managing quarter to quarter and adoption of biosimilars is going to have to be a long-term play. Right. Can you go back and just explain for our listeners what you mean by fail first strategies? Yeah, within the industry, it's pretty common that uh, there will be guidelines and or pathways, algorithms, et cetera, that will require a patient to, to take a specific product, usually a less expensive but efficacious product, equally efficacious product. And they, the, the managed care organizations want those individuals to try those products first before they move on to maybe a more expensive product or a product that is more toxic or has higher side effects. So it basically is a stepwise approach to therapy that physicians do this all the time. Mm-hmm. But this concept of fail first really, I believe it originated with the managed care organizations and payers. Today, based on contracting and rebates that are paid, a lot of times the brand product may actually be less costly to a payer because of rebates than the biosimilar will. And so right. the, the payer is going to require them to use the brand before they go to a biosimilar. Well, that's good for the payer. It's good for the manufacturer, may not be as good for uh, the patient downstream. And certainly from a system standpoint, it's probably not the optimal way to go about this. When you think long term of how do we reduce the total healthcare cost within the United States? Right. So one more time, what was that number that you quoted that that it's predicted biosimilars may be able to have a beneficial impact on the healthcare spend? What was it like? Fifty one. Billion or something? $54 billion. $54 billion. And and that won't happen overnight, certainly. But what would you predict? Yeah. How how long, given all the challenges and the fluid nature of regulatory and, and payers and contracts, patents and that sort of thing, all the different moving parts, how long would you figure before we're really seeing close to maximum realization of that. Is that something that you predict is going to occur over five years, 10 years, that we'll be able to look back and say, 10 years ago, we were spending way more and and having outcomes that were far less meaningful than, than we are today? Is it Should we be hopeful for a five-year window or a 10-year window, or what would you think? Well, I think that the data that came from Rand Corporation was was 54 billion over a 10-year period that actually started in 2017. And and as I mentioned, there's 10 approved biosimilars, and and those are providing uh, cost savings. Um, the the very first one now has about a 50% share of market. So we're seeing uptake, we're seeing adoption of that. The 54 billion, though, when the the big number is going to happen in 2023. Um, when two of the two of the biggest drugs in the world uh, will will have some competition uh, going forward, uh, and th- that will happen, they're approved today, but they're not available in the U.S. market and will not be until 2023. That's the year that we will see a really significant impact with regard to biosimilars on the financial, uh, a big financial impact in the U.S. A big chunk of it within the five-year window. So um, that's certainly encouraging. 
Richard, I, I've seen a number of articles recently in the Wall Street Journal about biosimilars. Why is there so much confusion? Uh, Andy, that's a great question. And I've actually read, um, I think there's five or six articles that have taken place in the, uh, the this past summer, starting in July, uh, with the FDA unveils efforts to get biosimilar drugs on the market faster. Clearly, we see a strong impetus from the administration, both President Trump and the Department of HHS and the FDA to accelerate the adoption and approval of biosimilars. The, the second article that you may be referencing that you may have seen was how big pharma suppresses biosimilar. It's certainly, I am a huge fan of innovation of the biopharmaceutical industry. Uh, they have done amazing work and they want to protect their interest and that makes perfectly perfect sense. But They need to do it in the right way and there have been games that have been played and so there's a lot of focus on that of how do you prevent that from happening. And because we have not adopted uh, biosimilars here in the U.S. as quickly as they have in Europe, uh, there was an article talking about, is it time to throw in the towel on biosimilars? And I would submit to you and your audience, absolutely not. Uh, because we, again, we need to create this market so that we can pay for the future innovation that's coming that is really exciting. And patients really uh, have high hopes for the cures and treatments that are going to be coming to the market in the next next five to ten years. So there was an article, uh, don't give up on biosimilars, Congress can give them a boost. Let me let me assure your audience that one of the things that there is total alignment in uh, Washington about, and that is approving the biosimilars and, 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 and taking advantage of these uh, new products when they come to market, whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you're a senator or a representative, whether you're in the executive offices of the White House, every single person is aligned to how do we accelerate and adopt biosimilars quicker in the United States. There's questions about policy there. And so there's the, the one thing yeah. that those headlines all reinforce is complete alignment from Washington to make sure that this is a successful marketplace. Well, consensus is pretty rare there right now. So another reason to be encouraged by the biosimilar activities. So that is about all the time that we have today. And with that, I want to say thank you, Richard, for sharing your insights with us. And once again, we look forward to having you join us at some point in the future. Thank you for listening to the CSI Specialty Pharmacy Podcast. If you enjoyed listening today, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast delivery platform of choice. I also encourage you to visit our website, csigroup.net, and you can download your free copy of the 2019 State of Specialty Pharmacy Report. Very soon, you'll be able to download the 2020 State of Specialty Pharmacy Report. Again, that's csigroup.net forward slash survey. You can also keep up with us on social media by following CSI Specialty Group on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. CSI Specialty Group is a subsidiary of group purchasing organization, Intelair. CSI expands Intelair's suite of solutions to healthcare providers, health systems, pharmacies, and pharmaceutical partners. Intelair is owned by Intermountain Healthcare, a leading healthcare system based in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
CSI supports our parent organization's vision of providing tailored, smart solutions to help deliver superior services at an affordable cost. You've been listening to the CSI Specialty Pharmacy Podcast. Until next time, good day. Thanks for listening to the Specialty Pharmacy Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the show notes for you at csigroup.net slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on our podcast player so you never miss one of our future episodes. And if you haven't given us a rating or a review on iTunes yet, please find a spare minute and help us reach and educate even more of our specialty pharmacy peers. The Specialty Pharmacy Podcast is a production of CSI specialty group your go-to firm for all things specialty pharmacy thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time doctor's orders